think we'll get started. Um, thanks very much for, for coming out this evening. I know that the middle of Hillary term is a particularly busy time for, for people, so it's very good to, uh, to see another, another great audience. Um, it's a real honour this evening to have with us uh, Dr Rama Mani. Uh, Rum is the project director uh, for the Ending Mass Atrocities Echoes in Southern Cultures project at the Global Centre for the Responsibility to Protect. Um, she's also, at the moment, a senior research associate um, at the Centre for International Studies, which is in the politics department um, here in Oxford. We'll forgive Rama for the fact that she got her PhD at Cambridge, um, but it's good to see that you've, you've come over to the right side. Um, here in the politics department, so we're, we're very grateful for that. Um, Rama, for, for those of you who've been reading on post-conflict and transitional justice issues for a while, I know will be very familiar to all of you, um, particularly because of her book uh, called Beyond Retribution, Seeking Justice in the Shadows of War, um, which I think is a very widely cited text and certainly very heavily used in most of the teaching um, in, in this university. Um, she's also been on the, the Academic Council on the UN System and the International Peace Institute in Alexandria. So Rama brings an enormous amount of academic and practitioner expertise on the subject matter that she's going to speak to us about this evening. Uh, which is called Between Armageddon and Utopia, Conflict, Prevention, Justice and Reconciliation After Mass Atrocity. Thanks very much, Rama. Great. Thank you very much, Phil. It's wonderful to be here and um, talk about the subject. I'm sorry about the rather flamboyant and uh, um, what extremist title that I gave to my talk, just because Conflict prevention, justice and reconciliation after mass atrocities seem a little bit your daily bread for all of you who work on the subject. Not that Armageddon isn't, unfortunately, but I hope that the utopia will be a little bit out of the ordinary. What I wanted to do today is, you know, I spent a lot, a lot of my time since 96 when I started working on post-conflict peace building and transitional justice, grappling with this new field. And now it's funny enough to see that transitional justice has become the veteran it's the old guy on the block. And there you have this new guy coming along, struggling with a lot of the same issues that transitional justice struggled with for so long. And since I've started working a little bit now with this particular project that Phil mentioned, which is looking at the new principle of the responsibility to protect, uh, very quickly, the background, it was adopted by the United Nations in 2005 in what was probably the most embarrassing and beleaguered anniversary celebration of the United Nations, the 60th anniversary. But in through the back door in paragraph 138 and 139, these rather reluctant member states of the UN did accept the responsibility to protect populations from genocide and mass atrocities and to act exercising international responsibility when a nation state seemed to fail or lack the capacity to protect its own citizens. And what I was struck by really was the similarities which don't strike one. I haven't seen a whole surge of interest as yet. I hope that after today there will be a whole lot of new literature emerging of you know, scholars of transitional justice who are looking out and seeing this new emerging norm and thinking how can we give it a bit of support and tell, share some of our lessons and perhaps also share some of our lessons about what not to do, you know, the mistakes that we made which maybe this new kid on the block shouldn't make. Starting off, I was struck actually, it's too bad I didn't bring a copy of it, it didn't slip into my bag. Just a few weeks ago, actually interestingly enough, when I was preparing for a conference in Berlin, which was on transitional justice, hosted by the government, 
I happened in my bedside reading to come across the famous Hermetica. I wonder if I can see some of you who look very philosophical, and I guess the legal <laughs> scholars around here would know. Written by Hermes Trismegistus, actually Toth, you know, the old Greek god, wisest man perhaps, or wisest being perhaps, 3,000 years ago. And what was interesting is the paragraph that really struck me was while at the height of the Egyptian civilization, he already presaged what was to come. And he said, darkness will be preferred to light. The pure will be thought insane. And the impure will be honored as wise. The madman will be believed brave. And the wretched esteemed as good. And that seemed a fitting point to think about the conundrum that we face when we enter these situations after mass atrocities, when the most horrific acts that could ever have been imagined have been committed by human beings. And the transitional justice community comes in there seeking to restore some semblance of justice after things beyond the, the realm of imagination have been committed. And that's exactly even more uh, the challenge faced by this new norm of the responsibility to protect, because it comes in not in the aftermath, but while events are building up and horrific atrocities are being committed in the heat of conflict. And what struck me is that both of these, transitional justice and the uh, responsibility to protect, are seeking within this Armageddon-like situation, already presaged 3,000 years ago, which has happened not just once, but over and over again, the DRCs and the Rwandas and so on, to see how a utopic outcome could somehow be brought out of the situation. In the case of transitional justice, what is the, the marge, the manoeuvre, how much possible accountability can we squeeze out of this political transition, despite the constraints? How much semblance of justice, and if not justice, at least truth, and if not truth, at least dignity can be restored to the victims. And in the case of R2P, can we possibly somehow intervene by whatever means possible while the killing is going on and somehow mitigate what is happening, somehow create a situation which may make less of a burden for the transitional justice community to deal with later on. So the three questions I wanted to address today, one, what is there in common between these two? If indeed there is anything, maybe it's just the imaginings of a wild mind and me trying to draw a nexus between the two uh, issues that I've been dealing with and I'm dealing with at present. Two, what if anything can the veteran field, now veteran field of transitional justice, still only 15 or so years old, but still, what can it contribute to this new norm as it seeks to establish itself and move from norm to action, and as it faces some of the same conundrums and dilemmas and obstacles as it goes along. And three, I mean, it's not like it's a done deal for transitional justice. There's still many challenges, and I think that's also part of the coming of age of transitional justice, that the community is beginning to look at itself. So what, what should both of these communities communities of it. What should both of these, well, the, the, the defenders or advocates of both of these norms be thinking about to face the challenges ahead? In terms of what's common, besides the obvious one that I've put forward, but the, that they're both utopic in rather deadly situations, is the fact that both of them, interestingly enough, they seem revolutionary simply because impunity and sovereign, you know, sovereign impunity seems to have been the norm for as long as we can remember. But both of them actually based themselves on existing international human rights 
and of humanitarian laws. They're not saying you need to introduce a whole raft of new legislation. It's saying it's all there, but let's actually invigorate and bring into being the laws that exist and that most of you have signed on to or accept as customary. They both came into existence because of the pressure of this kind of coalition of like-minded strategic actors, local civil societies, the international NGO community, especially the human rights and humanitarian groups, and very important, the like-minded governments who are willing to go that extra mile and defend these concepts within the UN. In a sense, one could say that both of them were successors of this you know, new concept that had its heydays shortly after the end of the Cold War, human security. They both were burst in that enthusiasm where policymakers and NGOs were able to come together and find common ground. What I find really interesting, though, is two other similarities. In a sense, both of them were birthed out of failure. It was the humongous failure after you know, what is now championed as this great Nuremberg precedent, which in fact was only a handful of the worst culpable criminals being put on trial. But then we had this kind of baffling gap for decades when impunity was the rule of the day. And dictator after dictator could come and go and live out his, usually his, uh, days in happy luxury wherever he chose to, and nothing would happen. Um, despite the activism, usually of very brave local civic groups, of women, of you know, people who had lost their near and dear, um, an R2P as well was born out of that same sense of profound failure. The same kinds of failures, even one could say, it was the Rwandas. It was for R2P, the conundrum of Kosovo. On the one hand, this international community which dithered and didn't know what to do, and when it did act, felt embarrassed about it. Whereas if you actually go and speak to any Kosovar, whatever their background, they would say, why did it take so long? And why wasn't it the UN? And why, you know, and why was our, were our lives not important enough to do more earlier, whereas we are worried we did too much too early? So both of them being born out of the sense of failure, the sense of never again, which is important for us to bear in mind because in a sense you could say that that sense of failure creates the impetus and a pressure for success to undo the bitter taste and the high human cost of the failure. Now the other thing that's also absolutely fascinating is that in both cases, the normative value of these two concepts seems undeniable. It seems almost universal. It seems kind of almost what one would call, the, you know, the young would call a no-brainer. What seems interesting is, one, even at the political level, there isn't any political leader, whatever his or her stripes, who would actually come out and say, oh, I believe in uh, denying my citizens the right to life and exploiting their human rights, and I believe in denying them access to justice. So there is the rhetorical weight in, in normative terms. But more important, across cultures, across time, across civilizations, one finds resonance, across religions even, one finds resonance for these norms of rendering justice, of protecting the lives of others. So what then can the veteran field of transitional justice teach this new struggling concept of the responsibility to protect. 
Some have bravely already said that the responsibility to protect could be called the norm that most rapidly went from a non-existent concept to a concept to what could now be considered an accepted international norm. I think that's a bit optimistic, but hopefully we can discuss this thereafter. Um, as we said earlier, I mean, for long, impunity was the rule of the day. It seemed pretty much a situation one had to accept, that if you wanted the dictator out of the way, well, let's just hope he goes without too much of a struggle and lives out his days in happy exile. If you want that peace agreement, well, let's just decide how big the pie is that we carve out for this warlord or that warlord. And let's pray that that's good enough and they don't drag the country back to war because in the end it wasn't good enough a couple of years later. And that seemed to be as good as it would get. Let's not forget the situation in which TJ, the transitional justice, appeared almost like a phoenix out of the embers of this situation against all apparent odds. You know, 1989 with the end of the Cold War and all the Eastern European transitions, where if you managed to have lustration of vetting, that was pretty good. 1989 with the whole appearance of post-conflict transitional justice, but even then, Namibia, a bit of an attempt by some actors, which didn't go very far, so nothing whatsoever being done. Um, Cambodia. You would remember that Hun Sen, early in the days of negotiation, made a big hue and cry that he was going to push for trials, but as you got closer to the finishing line into the peace accord, he backed off and nothing whatsoever was done till now, 30 years later. Um, Mozambique again, nothing being done. Um, El Salvador, perhaps a partial exception, because you would remember that they had not just the Truth Commission, quite unique at that time, but they also had the Ad Hoc Commission, which vetted the most abusive army generals. And I would say that that was largely because there was a very savvy, very active local civil society, which had been tracking every human rights violation, which had been lobbying the negotiators and getting this into the peace agreements very early in the day, and were able then to support these two bodies with all their information. South Africa, which in a sense is seen as the case that galvanized at least the tr truth and reconciliation part of transitional justice. But when we think about it, I mean, the best deal after all those negotiations and consultations and looking at all the precedents from Eastern Europe and all the precedents from, uh, from, from uh, Latin America, the best they could rest out of that situation was a softened, you know, degree of impunity. It was conditional amnesty. And yet, despite this, so this is a situation, late 18, 1980s and early 90s, and despite this, you have the flip with Yugoslavia and Rwanda, and suddenly you have this burgeoning of truth commissions and, um, and trials. So what led to this mind shift? And if we can understand that, is there anything that the responsibility to protect could learn from how to shift extremely recalcitrant, extremely negative, extremely skeptical, extremely cynical opinion in favor of a norm that seems rather difficult to implement. I started thinking really hard about this question again as I was preparing for this afternoon. And I would be really curious to see what some of you who've thought about it uh, in your own context would feel are the reasons for this mind shift. The few that struck me thinking about it in terms of R2P and what the responsibility to protect could learn from it were 
couple of things which may be factors that led to the mind shift. Local civil society, yes, they'd been very active since Argentina, but at some point it seemed that they reached the tipping point. It was, after all, the early era of this globalized civil society where information about atrocities was being shared much more easily and much more rapidly than before. The international human rights uh, activists were extremely active on transitional justice issues. Great failures in the beginning, but then they gained traction. The fact that like-minded governments were willing not just to support this because you had to have the negotiators and peace mediators willing to put these rather undesirable agreements on transitional justice into peace accords, which could scupper your agreement, but they were also willing to put their money behind it by actually paying for these rather expensive processes. Political will, somehow this never again factor, seemed finally to catch up with governments and make them feel, well, we didn't stop the atrocity from happening. The least we can do is some measure of justice for the victims. But I would add to that, perhaps a little skeptical voice within me, not just political will, but political expediency, that suddenly, especially post-Yugoslavia, you had a couple of political leaders where it was quite expedient for them to be seen despite their high positions and their hitherto sovereign impunity to see them in the dark, uh, to see justice being done in some sort of symbolic way. So political expediency, I would say, was also probably very important in this tipping point and in suddenly having figures as high as Milosevic finding themselves behind bars, suddenly finding a Charles Taylor who felt he could just keep hopping back in and become president, um, finding himself facing justice instead. The atmosphere was created for Pinochet-like situations, even if it wasn't in the hands of international um, lawgivers. So could this help the responsibility to protect? Does it face similar positive prospects? Yeah, there's a lot more public information, much, much more, much more easily available than in the early 90s. But somehow that doesn't seem to have created this, this mind-shifting um, sweep or groundswell of opinion. The timing, I would say, is not as propitious, just as actually the irony is the concept of the responsibility to protect was birthed, uh, was kind of hatched and presented to the UN and the world community just after 9-11. So it was you know, like dropping a bad egg in the middle of a very unwelcome situation. And that's why it disappeared till 2005. And likewise, even after the adoption by the UN in 2005, the, the repercussions of Iraq and Afghanistan and very few success stories makes countries extremely reluctant to, you know, to openly back it. Civil society, which was key for transitional justice, hasn't quite come around the responsibility to protect in the same way. And I'd say there are two parts to it. Local civil society is very skeptical because of their own experiences, because of what they see has happened next door or hasn't happened next door and their fear of the double standards and lack of consistency. And the international NGOs, and I'll come back to that in a bit, there hasn't been a kind of traction, there hasn't been a particular, you know, like the human rights community, which just was willing to go whole hog for transitional justice and for the creation of the International Criminal Court. And like-minded governments, you know, yes, there's a group of friends of the R2P, I mean, what an ironic concept, but friends of R2P there is in the UN, including Rwanda, highly symbolically important, 
But Rwanda's own, you know, we can talk about this later since many of you work on Rwanda and the DRC. Um, problematic, problematic. And none of the countries have really, besides maybe the Dutch, wanted to go too far out in defending the concept um, very openly. It's not all bad. I mean, interestingly, after the adoption of the responsibility to protect in 2005 at the summit, and this attempt at both a slow death and a fast assassination by uh, opposed governments, in July of last year, there was actually a General Assembly debate based on the report prepared by the Secretary General. And strangely enough, it was quite positive. It wasn't a thumping success, but the worst opponents were actually quite muted. China and India, who you know, protect sovereignty with their last breath and defied R2P with every bit of energy they had, were actually quite OK about it. And the few, Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, who were the, the troublemakers, didn't succeed in creating as much trouble as was anticipated. And there was support from almost all the regions of the world. So the situation isn't as bad. But at the end of all of that, all one got was a very lackluster paragraph of, you know, basically we won't delete the paragraph, in effect, was what the governments of the UN agreed to. So what can the responsibility to protect learn from the successes and the failures of, the tran of transitional justice? I'd say a couple of the really positive lessons of transitional justice that the responsibility to protect would be would do well to learn from. One is the incredible adaptability and the steep learning curve of transitional justice. If you go back to the beginning and think of, you know, what was the goal of transitional justice? It was just saying, things are tough. We're not going to get much out of this, but let's try and get squeeze a bit of accountability and squeeze a bit of justice. So it was very focused on, let's try to get trials, and if we can't, let's try to get a truth commission. It was focused on the time frame of after the events, you know, the transition, the violence was over. But look at how over time, if you just even start in the mid-90s and look at where we are today, the incredible adaptability, the incredible kinds of trials we see, the, the types of truth commissions, the combinations of measures, the expansion as well to include vetting and rule of law and institutional reform as part of the package of measures. And going with that, I would say also the expansion in the scope and in the time frame. So traditionally, and it makes sense, transitional justice has been about the post facto, dealing with the consequences. And yet, um, transitional justice has been keen to listen to and try to incorporate the critiques that came and said, you have to look at the rule of law. Because how can you do transitional justice if you don't look at the state of the courts, the state of the prisons, the state of the police, for God's sake, and the military? And so that was done. You know, the reform of the judiciary, for example. And the most interesting thing now that's happening is the new critiques coming up very much from the field, from areas where transitional justice measures are being either implemented or proposed, is people on the ground saying, excuse me, you want to do transitional justice for the consequences, for the human rights violations, but not for the social injustices which caused the war? Or those from Congo who are saying, what about the economic war crimes? And suddenly the field of transitional justice is looking very keenly at these issues and thinking, well, we better expand our scope once more. 
personally, that gives me a lot of satisfaction. But it also shows that the, the learning curve, because when I first published, well, when I forget for publishing the book, when I finished my PhD in 99, I remember this really well. Shortly before submitting, I was at a conference in Sweden with, you know, then the gurus, uh, Alex Borain from South Africa, Richard Goldstone. Um, I mean, it was just a kind of a table of luminaries around a table. And when I was talking about the rule of law and social justice as being the necessary components, that there needed to be three dimensions to transitional justice, not just looking at the consequences, the human rights violations, that happened during, but also looking at the causes of conflict before and the rule of law, it was considered simply quaint. Interesting, but I mean, honestly, way beyond our scope. It wasn't considered part of transitional justice. And now, it's all, we're not quite there, but there is very serious thinking going on into the overlap and the nexuses. So the two things that the Response We Protect can learn right away is there's going, to, there's going to need to be a very sh sorry, sharp learning curve. Difficult for R2P because learn from what? What's a success story? Is Kenya a success story of prevention of mass atrocities? We don't really know and it's too early to say. What else can we use? Could we learn from the negative cases of look how bad it is if we don't act, hence we should act? Should we just create a body of options so yes, there's a steep need for a learning curve, but a lot of innovative thinking of what to learn from and how to learn given this uh, situation. And likewise, I think R2P has the advantage in terms of scope and timing that the very concept of the responsibility to protect says we need to look at the before, the prevention stage, to prevent atrocities from happening. We need to look at the during stage of what can we do when the atrocities are happening to protect lives and mitigate. Um, and we need to stay in and help countries rebuild thereafter. So it already was based on these three areas, of course very politically expedient because you wanted to deflect attention from the things that people didn't like, which was intervening to stop mass atrocities. Um, so it starts with that advantage, but what's happened is politically, because everyone hated the intervention bit of what do you do when things really get bad. So now, within the debate, to soften that negative sentiment about R2P, attention has been deflected to the preventive side and the need to build capacity. So the great irony is that now R2P seems to be more about preventing atrocity and trying to gloss over what will we actually do if we don't prevent it, which is usually what our experience is. And the irony as well is that whereas Kofi Annan, the great champion of R2P, spent 10 years in his, uh, during his time at the UN, trying to inculcate a culture of prevention, it's finally after he's gone that through the back door and under the guise of R2P, prevention comes back, but really as an excuse for not intervening. What can both of them learn for facing future challenges? It seems as if suddenly transitional justice is the flavor of not just the month anymore, but really of the epoch. It seems as if not just countries which are emerging from violent conflicts, but those who dealt with their violent conflicts or their military dictatorships years ago, in Spain's case, I mean, a long, several decades ago, are now coming up with measures of transitional justice. And yet we know the challenges remain. All I need to do is mention Omar Bashir and the indictment, you know, or, or um, Joseph Kony, to say how this seeming 
lack of compromise situation between peace and justice seems to remain even today. So both have a lot to learn. And what would I throw in there as the key lessons, perhaps, uh, where the two might pay greater attention? One is sovereignty. I mean, right now we talk about sovereignty mostly in the context of the responsibility to protect, because it seems most directly to run up against state sovereignty. But if we think about it, that was the challenge for the transitional justice community as well. How do you tell a leader that his sovereign impunity isn't going to work and he actually needs to sort of negotiate it away? I think both the fields would be, and yet, you know, the transitional justice community doesn't speak so much about sovereignty. It's sort of like, we've been there, done that, we've dealt with it, let's not talk about it. So I think both of them could look at sovereignty again and start using the language that responsibility to protect brought out, which is reconfiguring sovereignty as responsibility. It's not this blanket check to do whatever you like with your population, but it's a responsibility to protect your population and give them justice. And I think that would be one important thing for both of them to, 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 um, to do, because if you think about it, both of them tend to be very state-centric, um, especially when it comes to the negotiating table and dealing with war lords or war criminals. The second would be kind of dead obvious, but embracing what I would call the survivor approach. And what I love so much about OTJR is the fact that it has really pioneered in critical thinking about this field of transitional justice. And what people here and within the transitional justice community, especially the academics, would be the first to say is, we are there to give justice to the victims, but we tend very often to run roughshod over their wishes. We tend to pay a lot of attention to the warlords and the political leaders, but not so much to the actual survivors. And I find it quite you know, humbling, really, that after all these years, when I think about transitional justice, it seems to me that the only thing that remains a given is if you want to do transitional justice, if you want to restore justice, the only starting point has to be the actual suffering and injustices faced by the survivors before, during, and after conflict. And if you don't start with that, what's the point of even trying to do this? And I think it's a huge lesson for transitional justice itself to just remind itself what it's about. It's there for the survivors. It's not just there for the victims, but all the survivors and figuring out how to build this community. And likewise for the R2P community as well, to think that's what we're there for. Let's start off right now self-consciously from there. And my two last final points, which I think are critical, which come out of what I said about the survivors. Because if you're thinking about actually being there for the survivors and that's what you're there for, well, the first thing that comes up is what is their culture? What is culturally appropriate for them? Which doesn't mean blindly embracing whatever they, you know, seems to be culturally fashionable, but deeply engaging with that and embracing that. I mean, we know, and those within the community would be the first to admit it, that unfortunately transitional justice has become a sort of prepackaged set of measures, yes, we keep expanding them a little bit, with minor adaptation to the local context. And that's about it. There's some consultation with the local population, but usually with very leading or loaded questions. You ask the questions you want to ask in such a way that you know what the answers will be. And that's been a lot of the criticism about these kinds of surveys conducted. So paying a lot of sensitive attention to culture, and that's partly what R2P has to start off with. Um, 
Yes, of course everyone facing a mass atrocity wants to be saved, but how and by whom and in what means, you know, in what way will you both save the life and restore dignity? And lastly, creativity. Seems a bit silly to say that, but we tend to be so tied up with these same little boxes, having a sense of the goal to be achieved, the material products to be delivered, that it does reduce hugely from our creativity and, and our ability to think what is the most appropriate thing to do in this particular situation. Second, if one goes back to what I said about survivors, it's, not, it's actually easier than you think because it's not just you that has to do all the creative thinking. The best creative thinking is out there. If we were there to listen to what the survivors within conflict, not just the political leaders, actually have to say about creative ways to deal with their situation and rebuild their societies, that's where the answers lie. And our job is simply to support them and facilitate that in happening. Let them be the architects. We are simply the engineers, one could say, who come in to do that. You know, Lao Tzu, another one of my great favorites in the Tao Te Ching said, we join spokes together in a wheel, but it's the center hole that makes the wagon move. We shape clay into a pot, but it's the emptiness inside that holds whatever we want. We hammer wood for a house, but it's the inner space that makes it livable. We work with being, but non-being is what we use. And I found that a very poignant way to think of our challenge to move away from what we are so, you know, doggedly obstinate about, the material responses, the concrete, measurable, quantifiable, and to delve into this realm of the non-being, the immaterial. Because in the end, peace and justice are much more about the heart and the mind and the soul, uh, the cultural and creative wisdom of societies than they are about our budgets and our time frames and our material provision of their needs. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Thanks very much.